0: So, welcome everybody. Thank you. I know that we had more announcements than usual, so don't worry. I'm going to preach fast today. Um, So, if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We will primarily be in chapter 1 and chapter 5 today, Uh, and that way you won't have to be flipping around too much. And then I will encourage you if you want to have a look on the screen. Sorry. Sorry. Um, I've got a QR code here. If you want to scan that, it will take you to a page on the church website where you can download the sermon slides. Uh, I try to provide as much content as possible on First Sunday that is useful for reference later on. And so a lot of times easier than writing down notes is to uh, scan that code. Um, As we turn to Ephesians chapter 1, I'm just going to point out... We have been doing a study of ecclesiology for the last few First Sundays. If you're new, one of the things we do is that on First Sunday, I try to teach on a particular theological doctrine to make sure that we're grounded in that area every other Sunday, or nearly every other Sunday. We do a chapter-by-chapter study of the book of a particular book of the Bible. So right now we're in 1 John, but here on First Sunday, we are talking about ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. Um, We talked primarily in that first study of how the church is the pillar and ground of truth. Meaning the purpose of the church, as we see in 1 Timothy, is to put the truth of the gospel on display. Uh, That would be the primary truth that we promote. But beyond that, we're actually promoting the reality of truth. That we're not to the exclusion of other truth. Right? We don't just say, well, know about Jesus and nothing else. We put the truth on display, that which God has revealed in his word and even what is in the natural order. Things like how God made man and woman in his image. Those things we communicate and we promote and we say this is what the truth is regardless of what society or wickedness might say. So with that in mind... We are going to continue to put the truth on display today and we're going to talk about the headship of Christ over his church. So if you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 15. Could I get someone to read verses 15 through 23 for me? Anybody want to go for it? Go for it, brother. Uh, through 23 Right on. Thank you very much, brother. Uh, I'll just point out something here. This passage is talking about the headship of Christ in the church specifically. However, we see in Matthew 28, chapter 18 and other places that Jesus's kingship is not limited only to the church. In fact, I have a little graphic here that kind of illustrates Jesus's king over everything, everywhere. We typically, especially in Reformed theology, but not exclusive to Reformed theology, understand three spheres of authority. Uh, All of them under the kingship of Christ. One sphere of authority would be the elders in a church. The church is a government. It is distinct from the civil government. But it is a government, and it is ruled by Christ using under shepherds, that would be elders and pastors, which is the same thing. Um, right? Then we have in the civil realm we have civil government that is run by magistrates, again as servants to King Jesus. We see in Romans 13 God has placed magistrates in the world to pre- provide order and apply God's law. Very simple. Then also we see that God has placed husbands in authority over their families and that that is the governance of the home. All three of these authorities operate under the kingship of Christ. This is an important concept because it means that even Xi Jinping or Kim Jong-un or Joe Biden or any other dictator you can think of, they operate under the kingship of Christ. Uh, I didn't even really necessarily mean that as a joke, but it did fit, didn't it? Um, Notice what's happening, though, is that those men will have to bend the knee to King Jesus, and that even now, their authority is only authority in so much as they are operating in obedience to the laws of God. This is why it could be a president, it could be a, a prime minister, it could be a pastor, it could be a husband, We obey in accordance with how they apply God's commands. And when they step outside of those things, they are going against the very kingship of Christ. I've preached on this other times. Mostly I want you to understand these three spheres because we're going to talk today about Christ's headship over the church specifically. But there's no way to talk about that without talking about the role of husbands reflecting that, as we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 5. So three things we see here in chapter 1. All things are under Christ's feet. That means he is king over everything. He is head over the church too. Keep in mind, head is always in scripture a term of authority. There are those in the egalitarian and feminist movements that are trying to say that head merely means source. Like you would say the headwaters of a river. In scripture, when we talk about headship, it is always an authority command. In fact, we see that kings are referred to as heads, On the king's head is where he wears the crown. And the idea, as we will see, is there is authority associated associated with headship. That is going to be important here in chapter 1, but as well as in chapter 5, as we'll see in just a moment. We also see then that the metaphor carries over in the idea that the church is Christ's body. Now, last time we talked about the church being like a building, like a temple, that we are living stones that come together to form the temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells. Now the illustration of the body is being used, and I need to maybe add to the mention here that Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, where he had planted what we understand to be multiple house churches, and our best understanding is that likely the book of Ephesus, the epistle, is a letter to the elders so that they can know how to run the church. It is half theology, primarily focusing on the headship of Christ, and then half implications of that headship as it plays out into these relationships we will see in just a moment now I need to point out a couple of things there are some false views of the headship of Christ and I'm speaking primarily on a colloquial level I'll just point out that yes there are academic views that are all different I'm just talking about how practically people think right one is we would have the Mormon view the Mormon view believes that there needs to be a new prophet who is in charge over the church Uh, you know, they believe it was Joseph Smith, and then I forget where it went to, but they believe even now there's a president over the Latter-day Saints Church, which a little side note, just to make sure you understand, it is a cult. They deny the eternality of God. That is a problem. They do not worship the same God, pray for their repentance and faith. Uh, Mormon Church is into some bad stuff. But that's one false view. They believe that there needs to be some prophet in charge rather than Christ alone. The Roman Catholic view, by the way, is a mixed view in different places. But there are many, most, who would say that the Pope in the Roman Catholic view is the vicar of Christ. And I always like to point out, you know, Christ's role is vicar. Uh, The vicar does not need a vicar, right? And so I want to point out that there are different views of the, I want to be gracious, but there are those who often think that whatever the Pope says is right. And that becomes a problem, especially under the current Pope who is saying some things that go directly against Christ. So I just always like to point out, we can't assume that a mere man can represent Christ, other than Christ himself, perfectly, right? Uh, We also have what I would call the feminist view. The feminist view hates the idea of patriarchy. It does not like the idea of male headship. And what we will see is the feminist view tends to attack male headship in general, not always with the intention of attacking Christ's headship, but often that is the overarching fallout that comes with it. You cannot, and this is going to be important later, you cannot reject the headship of a husband over his wife and over his home and assume that somehow you will not affect the view of Christ over his church. More on that later, as I always say. Um, the other is what I will call the Evangelifish view. This is, not a, this is not an actual academic view, but I'm just going to point out that often what's happening colloquially in just Christian thought doesn't always match with academia anyway. But I've noticed something. Uh, and by the way, I say Evangelifish not just merely as a pejorative term, but because historically the term evangelical meant that you believed in the sovereign authority of God and his word. And that when you looked at scripture, you said, that's what it means. I believe it and I'm going to preach the gospel because this is true. Now, as we survey what people that call themselves evangelicals, roughly 70 some percent of them believe the precise opposite to that. So I don't like using a term that was used of faithful Puritans, of faithful guys like Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon. And I don't like using that term for somebody like Andy Stanley who is denying the truth of scripture, right? So I call them Evangelifish because the term's supposed to mean something good, all right? But what I've noticed is that we are in a time where people love to trust their feelings over anything else. And I will tell you, the Roman Catholic apologists have made a good point against a lot of evangelicals when they say, you guys hate our Pope, but here you have become Popes unto yourselves. Now, I would say the authority of Christ in his word is what matters. But if you go around saying, oh, I just feel like dot, 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 you have made your feelings the Pope of your heart. And I'm, I'm going to point this out because I will often be able to have a conversation with someone that will say, yes, I believe that scripture is inerrant. Yes, I believe it's authoritative. Yes, I believe it's true. And then I say, awesome. Well, right here, it says that the head of every woman is a man. And right here, it says that a woman's not supposed to be a pastor. And they'll be like, well, but I feel, and I'm like, okay, either you trust the word of God or you don't. And the more problematic one is on a run to and I say, hey, the word of God says that the marriage bed is sacred. And and sexual unions are for a husband and a wife in the context of marriage alone. And they'll say, well, but I feel like, and and I I say this, let let your feelings perish against the word of God. But this I would say, and you're gonna see me preach against this the most today. I think that this is the thing that we are the most in danger of. I'm not too worried about anybody in this room listening to what Pope Francis says and saying, okay, let's do that, right? Um, Even the Catholics are like no, right? Um, But I am concerned at how easily our own hearts can be led astray. So I want us to think for a moment, do I believe that Jesus Christ is indeed head over his church? Or do I allow my feelings to come first? So with that in mind, I have some notes related to Roman Catholicism, the Pope. I'm not going to go over that. You can look at it if you're interested in history. I don't believe historically that there was any biblical idea of a singular papal figure. Um, and there were guys that were bishops that were in places in positions of authority, but not a singular one. So I'm going to move to the next one and just point out this issue of trusting free feelings. Um, I want to point out, one, we recognize the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture itself says it is sufficient for making us mature in Christ, that's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. That means I don't need to add to it the Enneagram to make me spiritually mature. I don't need to add to it um, some extra biblical knowledge. I don't need to add to it some mysticism. I don't need to add to it transcendental meditation. The word of God is sufficient to make me mature in Christ. And that's why you might remember, the things we do in church, because people are like, well, wait a minute, does that mean I don't need church? Well, let me just tell you, the purpose of the church is to put the truth on display, right? The word of God is sufficient. What do we do here? Everything we do is built around the word of God. We pray and we're putting the truth of God on display. We study the word of God. We teach. We're putting the truth on display. We minister to one another. What are we putting in in place? The word of God. Um, Side note, I will also point out, we are commanded not to trust our heart. Now, I need to give a little caveat here that's going to make you think I'm not a Calvinist for a second. But we recognize in scripture that Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. It means I can't trust it because it's wicked. We also know that when God saves us, he takes out our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. There is a change that occurs in a believer that moves us from being absolutely in rebellion against God to something different. But I still have a sin nature, and it means I can't trust my feelings. I need another side note in here to say, It is a wonderful and joyous thing when I am aligning myself to the truth of God. And as I do that, my feelings follow. And then it's a joyful thing. It's why when we sing songs and hymns to the living God, it's joyful and my feelings line up with that. Why? Because I'm binding my heart to the truth of God. I am not letting my feelings lead, but I let them follow. And when they follow, it's a joyful and wonderful thing. I will also point out here, We always have the choice between either God's law and autonomy. Uh, We would say between, I use this language, people don't like this word, but between theonomy and autonomy. Either theonomy, that would be God's law, or my own heart's law. And I will note that in the garden, when the serpent was tempting Eve, he didn't just say, hey, you do what you want to do. He began with, has God really said? He begins with casting doubt on Scripture and on its authority. And then, essentially, what should be a clear decision between what God has said and what I want to do, he blurs it just enough to make you think, well, maybe he didn't actually say this. Or maybe it's not really what he means. Or this is maybe, by the way, if you've ever read Paradise Lost, it's really interesting because he kind of goes into what was Satan maybe thinking. And it's speculative, but he almost uses this argument of like, well, God wants you to kind of come to your fruition. He wants you to disobey so that you can become what you really need to be. Evil, right? But keeping in mind, it is always God's law or mine. Now notice, why is this important in the context of the headship of Christ? It's because Jesus Christ, who is the head over this church, his body, has given us his word as his authority. And if I am to recognize the headship of Christ, what I am doing is I have to recognize what his word says. Cool? Following on. So with this in mind, we're going to look at Ephesians 5. And i got to tell you, sometimes I'll do a wedding and I'm preaching and I'm, I always preach from Ephesians 5. I've had people ask me not to mention it. And I think for a moment of like, why would you not want the word of God on the topic of marriage brought into the message? And it's because we cringe at times because our cultural sensibilities like something else better. But can I just tell you, well, let's read it and study what God's word says. All right, could I have another reader read verse 25, chapter Ephesians 5, 25 through 32? Go for it, John. Yeah, go through 32, brother. You're almost there. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and go fast to his wife, and you shall become one flesh. This
1: mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the
0: church. Well done. Thank you, brother. Um, by the way, can we point something out here? That Paul, as he's writing about the headship of Christ, turns his focus on marriage... And as he's writing, he's talking about the headship of husbands over their wives. And he seems to continually bounce back between the metaphor and between the f- specific example. And he, he almost can't seem to separate them. Are you noticing this here? He even ends with like, eh, I'm talking about Christ in his church. right? He keeps going back and forth because the two realities are inseparable. The idea that God has designed into creation the headship of a husband over his wife cannot be escaped. And I've noticed the more that we see in the feminist movement, especially an attack on this headship, the more we run into issues. Now, I need to just make a quick side note. We're going to talk about what it describes here, because most people I have. I've noticed when we hear submit, they shut it all off because what do we think of? We think of a poor woman uh, being abused, being under this iron fist. We think of a husband being a jerk, not speaking to his wife, caring. Can we just exegete what this passage says and point out what's actually happening here? Because what we've noticed, I like to point this out, the culture that hates God will hate the idea of biblical patriarchy because it represents Christ in the church. Let's just talk a little bit more and let's get an understanding here because when we see what is designed here, it's joyous and beautiful. So notice here, what are are the husbands commanded? Uh, Love your wife sacrificially to the point of even laying down your life for her. This means there is no command for the woman to go and protect her husband from physical harm. There is one for the husband to lay down his wife to protect his wife and family. That is, only men are called to that. Praise God. Two, we see that he is commanded to provide for her. I mean, we even see in this passage here, he's supposed to feed and care for his wife as his own body. Provision is built into this created order that is somehow reflecting Christ's relationship with the church. He's to cleanse her with the word of God. Now, this is something that Jesus is doing by giving us the word of God. But I would say the example is pretty clear. I better be teaching my wife the Word of God. By the way, I've noticed a lot of men, they're like, man, I'm not educated, I'm not trained, I didn't go to seminary. And I've also noticed a lot of women often, not always because the world's changed a little bit, have more time to be in Bible studies while their man is at work and often know more than their husband and the husband's intimidated and afraid to lead. You guys seen this, experienced this? Can I just tell you, men, the Word of God is your authority. You don't have to be an expert. Sit down at the dinner table Ideally, every dinner night, maybe you get three times a week, read a passage of scripture, go over a catechism, sing doxology and pray, and you will be nurturing your family and washing your bride in the word of God. Pray with her in the evening. I don't do this nearly enough. But can I just tell you, these things that are so simple, do something mighty for your family. We're going to keep talking. Don't worry um he we are commanded to leave our parents that means i can't be a mama's boy i need to go and leave my lead my wife right um i'm um, to live with her in an understanding way we are to become sexually united a husband and wife are commanded in multiple places to unite sexually praise the lord um we're, he's to honor her as the stronger and her being the weaker one physically right Wives are then commanded to submit to their husband, respect them, have a gentle and quiet demeanor. This does not mean that you can't talk out loud. It means not being boisterous, not being disruptive, not gaining attention for foolhardiness, right? She's to be faithful, to do him good and not harm, to stay connected sexually. There is something here, by the way, that is profound and powerful. Now, I want you to notice how in our culture there has been attack on any kind of an idea of male headship. And they will find the exception and say, look at all the bad things that happen here because men lead. And I would say, those things are happening because men do not lead. And what we've noticed, we've got the data, you guys, that when there is a husband and wife loving one another, faithful in church, divorce rates are down, abuse rates are down, kids don't end up in jail, kids finish school, kids tend to make money better, and then they end up raising families of their own better. Families are key. And so I want you to notice just for a second, paul can't get around the idea that you are saying something about christ when you are loving your wife you are teaching your children about the gospel when you sacrifice for your wife when you lead her this by the way this is something i have to work on it is so easy for me to abdicate on decision making just because i've had to make a lot of decisions during the day and i'm just like ah honey what do you think and uh, she'll call me on it at times like aren't you supposed to make this call aren't you supposed to lead in this way Men, lead. We're not perfect at it. I'm the pastor. I'm not perfect at it. But we are called to this and we are teaching our children about Christ along the way. Lead your wife. Provide for her. Protect her. Teach the word of God in your home. Be the head over your home. Make those decisions. Don't abdicate your leadership. And ladies, I've just noticed you need to let him. But I've also noticed that many times it's the ladies that are begging their husbands to lead. Do it, brothers and sisters. Do it, brothers, lead. Anyway, I'll also point this out. This will be very brief. But you will note that the things that Ephesians 5 says Jesus does for the church are things related to washing her from sin, or I'm sorry, Laying his down life his life for her that is justification, washing her with the water of the word that is sanctification, and then presenting her spotless that would be glorification. I will just point out these are the three aspects of salvation we see in Romans: justification, sanctification, and glorification. It's almost like this all goes together. Praise the Lord. Um, let's. Try, um, I promise there's not too much. I know we've gone late today. Are you guys good for like another five minutes? You all can do it. All right, let's roll. All right, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, I will read. I know we're jumping backwards a chapter. It says, and he, this is Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of uh, of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro, by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom, I'm sorry, into every joint which is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice something. The language here now is apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers who function to equip the saints under Christ. Uh, Apostles and prophets, if you've been in our bibliology class, uh, it's probably a reference to the word of God, right? The Old Testament is written by prophets, the New Testament by apostles, or with apostolicity. You guys hate when I use that word, but... um, And so the idea here is he's given us shepherd teachers, which seems to be the same thing in the language. It's like a shepherd teacher. Uh, This thing goes together that, that it's not distinctive roles and that their job is to equip the saints for the work of service, making sure then that certain things happen. I will just point out, there are some key results of this godly teaching that happens when elders do their job. Can you notice, we've talked about headship of Christ. We talked about headship in the home. Now we're talking about headship in the church. Cool. All right, some things happen when these faithful teachers are doing what they're supposed to do. One, it says that there is building up of the body. The church grows in maturity and often in size. I will ad- acknowledge not always. you do everything right and God might just allow for there to be persecution that wipes you out, right? But often there's growth. Healthy things often grow. Two, we see unity of faith. Doctrinal clarity leads to unity. And it is essential, as essential doctrine is affirmed. I will just point out, we see this often. We teach good doctrine, the church becomes unified. Some people are like, doctrine divides. Doctrine divides error from truth. And truth, when people who love Jesus, we know, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. When we teach doctrine, people are united. And the secondary issues become not that Important. I was in two loving debates with brothers in Christ this week on Facebook, and it it turned into just an admiration fest because it's fun to disagree in love. And we were we were we were we were sparring, but unity occurred even though we disagree on the secondary issues because we can all say Jesus is King. He has died for our sins. He's risen from the dead, and the affirmation of the gospel unites us even when those other guys are wrong. <laughs> right. All right. Third, we saw in uh, here in Ephesians 4, knowledge of Christ increases as people know the truth. And last, there is steadfastness that occurs. Notice it says that you are impervious to human cunning and wicked schemes. I will just point out that it was maybe three months ago that I think it was Whoopi Goldberg that said something anti-Semitic, and she was quickly attacked in the media, rightly so. Right? roughly a month or two later, because somehow crafty schemes have been at play and now anti-Semitism is the new cool thing and people in mainstream media are saying horrible things about Jews. And somehow in a matter of days, the entire wind of doctrine changed. Let me tell you what will make you impervious to those things is being grounded in faithful teaching of the word of God. Which is, by the way, I like that people around here aren't running off jumping into every other crazy new thing because you are grounded in the word. May it only increase. I will not go into great detail here on this next thing, but there are many commands for elders in this role of shepherding the church. We see that Jesus says, I have bought the church with my blood and put you in charge Well, he's in charge, but underneath him in authority, Uh, I'll just point out that's sobering to us. Hebrews 13 commands the saints to be submissive to the elders, right? But first Peter says this in verse five, he says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. I'm sorry, chapter five, verse one, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory of God that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. If I can just point out here that this looks a whole lot like how husbands are supposed to lead their homes. It's interesting that in the qualifications of elders, the commands, for weaning them out that are not worthy, are do they lead their home well? And if I could just point out three key things that show up here. One, it's not to be under compulsion. An elder should not be feeling like he's forced. Two, not for shameful gain. Could I also point out that not for shameful gain means I shouldn't be rolling around in, I I don't know, something really fancy if the people in our church are suffering, right? I shouldn't have a jet and then tell you, oh, you're going through something hard. You should just pay double tithe in order to get God's favor, right? That is shameful gain. Or a pastor who leverages his authority to manipulate a relationship, that is shameful gain. That is wicked. God hates it. Don't let anybody do it. Heaven forbid I should ever do that. We have elders who should challenge me, right? And vice versa. Um, Also notice, not domineering, but being an example. Can we just see what's happening here? That God has commanded that his church be shepherded, Christ his head, and he has placed elders in a place of authority to exercise oversight willingly as an example so you might just notice that these three things that we've talked about here, the three kind of areas of Christ as King, you have authority over the church, you have authority over the civil sphere, and authority over poems. I will recommend just a few books here. Uh, one is we have Mark Devers, The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, great one. Men, I'm gonna tell all of us men should read Family Shepherds. Great book by Vody Bacham. I don't know if we have it available in the church library, but a lot of these are available. Devoted to God's Church by Sinclair Ferguson, I'm pretty sure we have. And Same with Duties of Christian Fellowship by John Owen. Um, Not by our John Owen, but if he wants to take credit. Um, Thank you all for bearing with us. (laughs) Thank you all for bearing with us as we went just a little bit over. Um, I am going to pray, and then who is on for the gospel? Kevin, you're on for the gospel. All right, Father God, you are gracious and good. Jesus, thank you for being with us today. You indeed are king. You are head over the church, your body. Lord, may we submit to you. May may, other, may, our, may the men among us lead our families well and teach who you are and what you have done through that. May your kingdom come and will be done. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.